At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Thanks for tuning into our series, The Follower's Trail Guide, Navigating the Path of Jesus, where we're asking the question, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? As we walk through Jesus' farewell discourse to his followers in the book of John, we'll learn to follow in the steps of Christ as he marks out the way of discipleship for us. Julie Beck is a writer and an editor at The Atlantic. And Julie spent three years having conversations, over a hundred interviews with people, with friends of hers, about their friendships. And she wrote a whole bunch of articles over those three years, and she entitled them The Friendship Files. And as she got to sit across from all these different people during these interviews over the years, she said, she wrote that she not only heard about friendships, but she witnessed them in real time. I read several of these articles over the last uh, three years. This week, I haven't read them for three years, but I I read them, I perused them, and there were some amazingly heartwarming stories, as you would imagine, about friends. And then there were stories where friendship formed around tragedy. And uh, I could relate to some of them, like one of them entitled, When Your Closest Friends Are From Elementary School. I still have a best friend from elementary school. She happens to be my wife. And I'm, aww. (laughs) Yes, good points, babe. (laughs) And I'm very thankful that we've had a friendship over 30 years. That that helps in the moments of marriage, is to have a friendship that spans that many decades, even when you were in middle school. Friends are a profound gift to us, are they not? Can I get an amen? Yeah, they really are. And I feel like a millionaire when it comes to the abundance of genuine friendships that I enjoy. And I don't just mean the the quantity, although we've lived in some different spots and I've had some amazing people, more than than I deserve, who, who are genuinely my friends and speak into my life and bless me. But I mean the quantity, the quality, not just quantity, but quality. Amazing friends that have have acted out their love for me. And today, as I've just read from John 15, we get to a portion of Scripture where Jesus communicates his love for his disciples become friends. We call this the farewell discourse, and this is the trail guide, uh, followers trail guide series that we've been in for several weeks, and we're looking at this farewell discourse, the end of Jesus' earthly life, to try to understand what what was he meaning for, for us to do after he left. The disciples didn't know that he was quite leaving the way he did, but we have the hindsight and we we can look back and we can say, okay, Jesus talked about a whole bunch of different things and he's modeling some things for us to follow. It's a guide toward Christ-likeness, if you will. And so what does love look like from the perspective of Jesus? How does Jesus define love and what's the significance of friendship with Jesus when he calls them friends? What does that actually mean, and and what does it mean for many in this room who are trying to live in the way of Jesus? We're trying to practice what Jesus did, and so how how does that help us? I think we'll find that walking in the way of love looks far different than we imagine, certainly different than the world. And as we look at Jesus' words, we're going to find two significant ways that he shapes our life in community with other people. The first way 
is that he challenges his followers to think differently about love. Now, if we are the people of Jesus, Jesus' people, we are trying to walk in his ways and and follow instructions for faith and life, then we have to let Jesus define the terms. Jesus is going to define for us what does he mean when he says, love one another. Now, you and I have all sorts of different pictures in our minds of of love and uh, some good examples. Maybe you were the recipient of, of a home that just instilled that as a model for you, or you have significant moments in your life where you have had a really good picture of love. Just this week, I came across the inscription in a book. It's a new book that I just got, and it, you know the inscription is like after the title page, and it's like the author saying, this is dedicated to so-and-so. <clears throat> and this, is, this encapsulates a good kind of love. Let me read it for you. This book is dedicated to my beloved wife, Helen, with whom I enjoyed 45 honeymoon years, a selfless wife and mother with whom the Lord united me in heart and soul. She put Christ and her family first, led both of our sons to faith in Christ, and ministered to me in a profound way. I never got over the thrill of being married to Helen. I eagerly look forward to our reunion in heaven. Woo, just getting choked up. (laughs) Isn't that spectacular? Like that is the sweetest picture of this man's love for his late wife. It's beautiful. You and I also have some examples of not so beautiful love. And I actually am going to strike the word love from the record here. I don't even think the word love should be used to describe some of the discord and dysfunction and tragedy that it sometimes gets attached to. Flip on the TV at any of these stupid reality shows where people are supposed to fall in love and and all that stuff, I know, I'm not supposed to use the word stupid. My kids would, would get on me for that. But, but that's not love, right? That is not love. There are producers who are backstage and they're trying to make all this stuff happen. That's not love. What we oftentimes see on social media is not love. Or what we read in magazines, all the, all the stuff where we're like, oh, who's with who now? That's not love. And sadly, many people, maybe in this room, have had firsthand experience to the real dysfunctional relational discord that happens, maybe in the name of love. That's not love. But thankfully, by the grace of God, we have a hopeful and solid definition of love, which is what Jesus is going to unpack for his disciples and us in these verses. For the people who want to follow him, the command in verse 12, I'll call your attention back to the text, this is my commandment which means this is just not for information's sake, right? Ours is a faith that is thankfully uh, one that we can learn, but it just doesn't stay there. There's always a, a, a sense of expectation. And he says, here's my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Now, before we completely unpack that, if you jump like a few verses before, in verse 9, Jesus is explaining that as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. And so that's an important picture for us to recognize, that there's a a chain, a continuity of, of love and expectation, that the Father loved the Son in a particular way, and now the Son has loved his followers in a particular way, and the followers now are supposed to love each other. And by extension, here we are 2,000 years later, and it's for us as well. So there's this beautiful connection to how love is modeled by the people who are before us, namely even the Trinity, 
And so then when we think about, well, how, how has God loved us? How, how did Jesus love them? Which, by the way, if you ever feel like you're stuck in your personal time in the Word in the morning, like, oh, I don't know what to do. I'm just not getting anything out of this. I've been there. This is a delightful exercise for you to journal and read through the Gospels. What are different ways that Jesus has loved his followers? That'd be amazing for your soul. I think it would be an encouragement for you. But for the sake of time this morning, let me just throw out a few ideas of how did Jesus love them? Jesus, we believe, was the uncreated God. And Jesus stepped aside. He stepped away from the perfection and the glory of heaven to take on a body of flesh and blood to experience the limitations that we do experience every day. That's one way he showed love. He lived a very meager life from the world's perspective. And though we believe he is the king of all kings and he was entitled to everything, he decided for, that he wouldn't need royal trappings and have wealth and possessions in his earthly life. The context, if you think about, you know, Jesus could have arrived any moment in human history. And you think about the context of his arrival. He chose to come in a little slice of human history to a poor family belonging to a marginalized people group living under severe oppression by a powerful empire. You ever thought of that? That's the context in which Jesus chose to be inserted into human history. That's love. He chose a group of close followers who were rather interesting and colorful. Other rabbis of the day would would have among their ranks the like Ivy League of the, the Judaism schools, right? They, they, would, uh, they would only choose the, the choicest of students to follow them. And yet Jesus didn't. He chose some pretty ignorant people who were fighting even each other and had very different philosophies of, of life. He welcomed sinners and he pursued them. He constantly gave sinners the gift of his attention and his time. His public ministry was solely focused on seeking and saving the lost. Men and women and boys and girls had access to Jesus and to his message of hope. Right? That they're just longing for some type of salvation from their life, from their current circumstances, and, and it continues today. They can't rescue themselves. There's nothing that we can do. And yet, Jesus was on a mission to save. And then, if that wasn't all enough, he chose to die for enemies. People like you and me, who are not only unlovely, but pretty defiant, pretty self-absorbed, constantly arresting control of our lives, thinking we know best. Jesus did not have to die. He chose to die to fulfill the will of his Father. So in a nutshell, these examples are just a way to, to point out that Jesus put into practice a new kind of love. And with love, I'll qualify that, sacrificial love. I think the two have to belong together. And that's why he explains in the next verse, 13, that greater love has no man than this, and he lay down his life for his friends. So here's this understanding that love, you say you love, it's going to lead to some sacrifice, which is foreshadowing. The disciples don't know. <laughs> they don't know what's coming. 
He's talked about it a little cryptically that he's going to be leaving them, but they don't know the full picture of it yet. But Jesus knows that all along the path to his victory and triumph and glory, which if you read Revelation is there, is a path of death. It's a way of death. Jesus knows this. And the New Testament constantly points back to the knowledge that God knew this as well. Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us and that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. God knew what he was getting into. It wasn't a surprise. 1 John 3.16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, that we also ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So Jesus' love was not a feeling. It was an action. He didn't live the idiom, as many of us do, do as I say, not as I... Hang on, my kids prayed last night that no one would fall asleep. Literally, that was their bedtime prayer. May no one fall asleep. So, do as I say, not as I do. There we go, people are awake. That's what we live constantly. We're really weak and inconsistent. That's not what Jesus modeled. Thankfully, he didn't model do as I say, not as I do. He did. He did always. And I found this apt summary as I was reading through some of this and what he's expecting for for his disciples. The love of God for Christians becomes the love of God between Christians. That we see what Jesus did and then we do it. it. It is the motivation. It's God's love for us. But Jesus connected love and obedience. Look at verse 14. He called for them to do what I command you. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Now, first a note on friendship. We all get the concept of friendship, right? We have friends. We understand what it's like to be a friend or to have friends. The disciples could too. Jesus talked a lot about things that they didn't quite understand, but they could get the idea of friendship when he talked about it. But what was incomprehensible to them and to us and to me in particular today is the reality that there can be such a close bond of friendship between God and humans, Like, that's just incomprehensible that God would know fully who I am, who you are. And yet, because of the work of Jesus, he could call call us friends. Like, that, that is incomprehensible. And one commentator describes this friendship as an amazing offer. I'll put it up on the screen. It means that no longer do we need to gaze longingly at God from afar. We're not like slaves who have no right whatsoever to enter into the presence of the master. We're not like a crowd whose only glimpse of the king is is in the passing on some state occasion. Jesus gave us this intimacy with God so that he is no longer a distant stranger, but our close friend. Amen, indeed. But Jesus didn't even just leave it at friends. There was a so what aspect to this. This was not a like, hey, let's be friends and hang out sometime. There was some expectation to it. There was a like, hey, this actually means something. If we call ourselves friends of Jesus, then it means that we live a consistent life of obedience the way Jesus did. That's what it means to be his friend. But don't get the two confused. Don't, Don't flip that verse 14 around. It's not the other way around. Our obedience is not what leads us to friendship with God. Our obedience flows out of identity that is friendship with God. 
Because otherwise, it's works righteousness. We just have to work and effort and all that stuff. And all of our effort is not actually going to earn it. That's why the Apostle Paul pushed back so hard in Ephesians 2, 8, 9. By grace, you have been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It's a work of God. It's grace so that nobody boasts. Jesus defines love not as this warm and fuzzy ethereal thing that comes on us and then may pass someday, but he describes it as one of action and sacrifice. And I couldn't help this week of thinking of the story of my friend Rebecca Behrens who goes here. And I called Rebecca to ask permission for this. Some of you know this story. But several years ago, Rebecca felt compelled to give away one of her kidneys. That's not the ordinary thing that you wake up on a Monday morning and say, I'm going to give away a kidney. But Rebecca just felt like I have two healthy kidneys and some people don't and they, they really are in need. And so I'm going to give away one of my kidneys. And through a connection, somebody else who goes here to our church knew somebody who was in need. And so that kind of began this, this process where Rebecca was like, yep, let's just give it to a stranger. That'd be awesome. And so she went down the pathway of this. Now, it's not an immediate thing. Obviously, you have to go through all sorts of tests and surgeries and figure out if you're a match. And at the end of the day, her kidney was not a good match for the intended recipient. But she explained to me this week that just her willingness to put her name on the donor list and to say, sure, I can go to this guy, even though it wasn't a match, that initiated this amazing chain of other transplant opportunities that led to nine people getting kidneys, including some person that she doesn't know down in Atlanta who received hers. I mean, can we just praise God for that? Like, that's an amazing picture of sacrifice. That's epic. Not many of us are going to be able to have that kind of a, a story, but I, I praise God that she did. And that was to a stranger what Jesus is talking in particular about is like other people of faith. So just for a minute, I sometimes have you do this. Look across the aisle. This is our family room, right? This is the family gathering. How's your love for the family? How's your love for the family? Every few weeks, it seems like I get copied on an email with some opportunity that somebody has created to, to bless someone with a meal. Maybe it's a new baby. Maybe they've lost a loved one. Maybe they're going through a difficult time. Do you know what a blessing it is to receive that? My family's been a recipient of that a number of times with kids and health, health matters. When you get that, I don't know if you're a cook or not, but you know, there's like Grubhub, <laughs> but that's a tangible opportunity for you to love somebody else in the family. I'm, I'm always encouraged when I see those come across because I think, oh, look at this. It's, it's our family who's taking care of other family. Our time is a limited commodity. It's not renewable. We all, though, recognize that time with other people is better than a text or an email. There's a place for that. We need to give each other the gift of each other's presence, the face-to-face -face moments. Friends, are you giving your time to invest in another person's life? To sit down and make space in your schedule to say, I see you. I want to pray and encourage you. I want to hear what's going on in your life. 
Maybe it's somebody that you can say, I've seen growth in you. You're not the same person that you were when I first met you a couple years ago. Let's continue pursuing Jesus together. What about some more discipleship opportunities, just life on life? And then to go a little deeper in our relationships, do you care enough for a friend to speak the truth in love even when it may risk harmony? That's a hard one. But that's love. What about generosity? Giving compassionately to help a friend in a time of need. I wish I could share openly the stories that I get to hear of people in our church who feel honored and seen and valued because of the generosity of people. The stories are amazing. They're so cool. Jesus is honored by our financial sacrifice. That is a way to show love. Is there an opportunity for you to use a God-given talent or skill to bless someone who couldn't do for themselves? That's really cool when that happens. These are just a handful of opportunities, just in the preparation for this, of some practical ways to show love among the family. Followers of Jesus sacrificially give of ourselves for the benefit of our brothers and sisters in faith, our friends. And so having let Jesus define what love looks like, we then let him redefine and shape life in Christ-centered community. What does it mean in the community to live as Jesus did? What, what significance does that have? Jesus continues in verse 15, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant doesn't know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends for all that the Father made known to me, or that I heard from the Father I've made known to you. So this massive shift has now taken place right? They go from just followers to friends. He's, he's now going a little deeper. You go from servants to friends. Now, a servant is oftentimes just a person who has to blindly carry out whatever their master says, right? They have to just do it. But he's inviting them in, saying, no, you're friends. And with this friendship comes freedom and responsibility, First, we'll start with freedom. Freedom comes when we accept the gracious offer that Jesus makes with his life. When we recognize that Jesus removes the barrier of sin that separates sinful humans from a holy God. Jesus sacrificially laid down his life so that other people could enjoy friendship with God the way that Adam and Eve did. And so we have to ask ourselves the question this morning in the deep, quiet places of our soul, if we have accepted this offer of friendship with God, perhaps you don't feel like you need him. You don't need the crutch of religion. You're pretty capable on your own of managing. Perhaps you feel like you don't need a, just a bunch of people in your stuff telling you how to live and what to do. It's true, the Christian life is not a solo venture. Sorry if that's a newsflash to you. The New Testament is full of community. There is no solo venture in faith. It means that we do invite people into our stuff to help us, to encourage, to call out, hey, I think you're, I don't think you're quite living. Remember, it was the Apostle Paul who publicly called out Peter and said, your conduct does not line up with the truth of the gospel. 
So we do invite people into it. And we do recognize that we have to live for more than just ourselves. The offer of friendship with God is one of, of dying, of surrendering your life, your agenda. Giving up your old identity for a much truer and better identity. And I have a question. If you have not found freedom and fulfillment that your soul, you know your soul cries out for, wouldn't you like to be called a friend of God? Wouldn't that just fill up the spaces in your soul that are empty? That's Jesus' wish and heart for you this morning. If you are saved, if you're living, if you're saying, Jesus, yes, you are Savior, you are Lord, I want to live in your ways, then one of the incredible realities, we're not just friends who are like casually acquainted with him, but he welcomes us into his confidence. Like we, we actually get to, to have knowledge of what he is doing to understand like the big picture. How many have done a job before and you're like, this job doesn't make any sense. Why do I have to do this? My boss is an idiot. Like, I just, uh. When you have the big picture, it helps to make some sense of what you're doing, right? Of why you do what you do. And so we have been invited into the master's confidence. We understand now what the life of Jesus was about and what our life is about. God's grand story and his plans for us because he trusts us. We're his friends. He trusts us. And so then this leads, this freedom leads to responsibility, which Jesus says in verse 16, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. I appointed you that you should go. You should bear fruit. Your fruit should abide. The sovereign will of God has called us into relationship with himself through the sacrificial work of his son on the cross so that we would have a purpose of bringing others to faith. Three weeks ago, when we were in chapter 14, Jesus moved his disciples from believers to participants. He said, do the things I do. Not just the guys who follow him around and are learning from him, but now they're practicing. It's this idea of you're going to do the same thing. And so church, we too carry the ministry of God in the world by being Christ's witnesses, by living the way Jesus did. We're Jesus people. We do the things that he did, which is sacrificial love. Think about Jesus' purpose. Why did he come? Well, I talked about the moment in history in which he came, the context, right? He didn't come to exert political influence to set the Jewish people free from Roman oppression. He could have done it super easy. He didn't. It wasn't to help the fishermen in his inner circle have more success than their businesses, right? Oh, if I just hang out with Jesus and some of his good stuff will rub off on me and I'll have a great fishing business. It wasn't that. He wasn't here to, to help people strike it big with fish. It wasn't for his name recognition. He did lots of signs and wonders. Lots of people came. That wasn't the point. The point wasn't the crowds and all of the, the people who just wanted stuff from him. It wasn't for his own name recognition. And it also wasn't working really hard now so that he could just retire early. If I just put in my time for three hard years, then I'm just going to be able to kick my feet up. That was not the purpose of Jesus. It was to bring people to the Father. And he did it through his sacrificial love. 
His whole life was a signpost of saying, this is who God is, and you can know him. And such is our purpose. Verse 16 makes really clear to us that we are appointed to continue in his work. We bear fruit that lasts. And I think that is Jesus' way of saying the disciple-making movement of the church. We bear abiding fruit when we continue in the practice of helping people belong to Christ, to grow in Christ, and to reach the world for Christ. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Yeah, well, at least a couple. Does it sound? That's, that's the purpose of our church, to help people belong to Christ. We want them to know God's love and to, to be part of his forever family. We want them to experience salvation, to belong to Christ. We want them to grow, to understand more deeply deep, deep down, who is God and what is my purpose and how can he use me? And then always to reach the world for Christ. We always have eyes for other people just like Jesus did. And so he invites us into this. He invites us into bringing every sphere of our lives. You're placed where you are on purpose. Your zip code, your workplace, where you play, where your kids play, on purpose. This is our responsibility. It's our invitation from our king as friends of God. And here's the cool thing that he goes on to say in verse 16. When, whatever you ask the Father, in my name, he may give it to you. When we ask in accordance with Jesus' mission, our heavenly Father will move and respond. One of our core values with our life groups is the idea of shared mission. We don't want to be holy huddles that just keep our eyes focused inside and have our little food and, and discussion, but we, we want to exist for the sake of other people because Jesus existed for the sake of other people. And so we ask our life groups to pursue a shared mission together. Who is God calling you to reach? Who is God calling you to reach? Not what. Service projects are great, right? We, we do these boxes here. Those are good. There's a place for that. But as spiritual families together, we say, who has God called you to together reach? So in the life group that I get to co-lead with Carol and Allie, my wife, we've been praying for months, God, who, who, who are we supposed to exist for? Pray, pray, pray. All last season, we felt like we didn't have an answer. And so this summer, we felt like the Lord just dropped an idea in our laps around my fire pit. And so let me tell you a little bit about it. Grandma Jean is our eldest life group member. And she lives here in our city in, uh, in an independent living community just down Middle Belt Road. And Grandma Jean is an evangelist and she's a lover of people in her community. She loves them. She tells them about Jesus. Some of you know Jean. Some of you have met the people that she has brought here for a Sunday service or to a women's gathering. And so we thought, you know what? Grandma Jean is living on mission at her community. Let's join her. So we all packed up and moved in. Just kidding. But we did say, we could make time in our schedule once a month to go and hang out with her and her friends. And so last month, a couple gallons of apple cider, some snacks, and some board games. And we sat in the community center and we played and the kids are running around and 
I don't know if you know about independent living communities, but sometimes people are kind of lonely there. People stop showing up. They, their family doesn't always visit. And so we prayed and we thought, what if the gift of our presence might lead to conversation, might lead to prayer? Let's just see what God does if we make 90 minutes of our time once a month hanging out. I think Jesus would show up with apple cider, board games, and a little competitive spirit. Because those ladies can play Farkle. <laughs> Woo! So we pray and we make ourselves available. We sacrificially love through giving of our time and our presence to them. The friendship that we have with Jesus is based on new life that he's given us. He initiates, he empowers us. That's where it comes from. It's not just from, hey, these, these are capable people and they can muster it. We can't do it very long if we're not grounded, if we're not abiding, as we talked about last week. We're not abiding in his love. Our priorities have to match Jesus's. What was important to Jesus? How did he spend his time? They have to match. Otherwise, we find ourselves pulled in a lot of other directions. And trust me, I mean, there are lots of distractions to your schedule. What I'm inviting you to consider today is how do your priorities match up with Jesus and the way that he lived? And are there some things that are good, they're just lesser? Only when we live humble, pure, obedient lives, that's how Jesus lived, are we going to last and will bear authentic fruit that brings honor to God and shows love for other people. And hey, church, this one can be hard for us. Only when we love one another sacrificially will the world even take notice. Wasn't it Jesus earlier in John 13, 34, who said, a new commandment I give you? This will sound familiar. That you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. When I read Julie Beck's final installment in the Friendship Files, it was a, a list of the six forces that help form friendships and maintain them through the years. This is her conclusion. The final of that list of those forces was grace. And it caught my attention. And let me read what she wrote. She writes, I'm not religious, but I do love the concept of grace, of a gift so profound that it could never be earned or deserved. And so when I cite grace here as the final and most important force in friendships, I mean it in two ways. One is the forgiveness that we offer each other when we fall short. The other is the space that creates for connections and reconnections that feel nothing short of miraculous. Of course it caught my attention. Friends, we know grace and forgiveness because of the life and the death of Jesus. And it is miraculous. Amen? It is miraculous that he would love us and call us friends and invite us in to model him. There's no plan B. Kind of crazy that he would choose people like us to just continue this thing until he comes back. But there we go. 
we do the things Jesus did. That's what friends of Jesus do. I heard this week a pastor who said, all of our stories one day get weighed on the scales of love. And so I want to invite you to just close your eyes for a moment, just a a minute of reflection. Some good and hard words from Jesus, for sure, for me this week, maybe for you as you sit here. There may be something that Jesus, by his spirit, is tugging at your hearts. Maybe it's a priority that doesn't match up to him. It's It's lesser. Maybe it's an opportunity for you to show love in a sacrificial way to someone in our church family, or even better yet, somebody outside. I can't pretend to be the Holy Spirit in your life. I'm just laying before you the very words of my Lord and Savior and inviting you to go deeper still in that. So let's take a couple minutes of reflection and then I'll pray for us. Father, thank you for even making a way for us to call you friend. We love you because you loved us first. But you also loved your son so much that you sent him so that whoever would believe in him would not die but would live forever with you and have purpose and meaning and identity. And so we recognize we're your, your people. We're gathered here, Heavenly Father. We've heard the word that you wanted us to. And there may be some areas of our life that you're chipping away. So do your good work. We believe that you're a good, good Father. We believe that you deeply loved us. So help us, guide us, encourage us, give us truth and hope and a zeal for good works as the New Testament talks about. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.